In this episode, I speak with Pablo, a student of politics and of Spanish origin, a person well-versed in Spanish politics and political history. Our main topic is the rise of right-wing politics in Spain, scattered with the odd pinch of right-wing politics elsewhere, mainly in Europe. What are the power considerations of the right? How to take advantage of weakness? How to create power within a vacuum? How to dominate in a space where anarchy might reign? This is the right wing. The confident bluster of the ultimate show people, giving an authority to concepts that deserve no authority and no space in public discourse. And yet they come, seizing the day and pushing their agendas on the unwitting victims of their own propaganda. They create fear in the people already concerned about the state of their lives. This wasn't what they thought would happen when they were kids and went to school and studied for all those years. Then falling in love, having dreams, maybe children, more love, and then responsibility, and then fear. Create the fear, massage it and channel it, and that leads to a ready acceptance of one's dogmatic power charge, the rush and the adulation, the unquestioning support for the hangman's noose. Academic language and how that can affect political identity, orientation and engagement direction is a problem I have had for a long time. The left, so focused on morality, preparedness, justification and evidence, is so damn complicated. Say it like it is. Stop being so educationally elitist. Sorry, rant over. Thanks, Pablo, for taking the time to chat with me. Enjoy. Don't wait a peck, good well, my beer, to under mic. Don't parody, cut joke, my way to under mic. Set your team suit, put our wind to under mic. All our joke, what bed be. So I'm joined by Pablo, um, a good friend uh, who we share lots of interests with. Pablo, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about you? Thanks for yeah, being with your podcast. Yeah, to be honest, it's, it's long overdue. Um, I, I should have invited you a long time ago, but um, yeah, I was enjoying our sort of basketball engagement so much that uh, it slipped my mind. Um, but we actually met uh, at uh, Amnesty um, when we were both engaged there. Um, and you are still engaged with Amnesty in a certain capacity on a very interesting topic. Would you like to talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. So I worked for Amnesty for a year, which is uh, where I met you. And then uh, for the last year of my uh, master's degree, I decided to create an initiative at my university, which is under a network uh, called the Digital Verification Corps that uh, belongs to Amnesty. And what we do basically is we conduct digi digital open source investigations on human rights relations across the globe to uh, well investigate uh, the human rights relations that are happening through the verification and discovery of uh, open source content. And yeah, that's a way that we support uh, Amnesty's investigations 
uh, on these violations and help them put their reports together with um, well verified and trustworthy information. Cool. Okay. And so I guess some of the results of these investigations people can find in the the numerous amnesty reports that are published on, on a weekly basis. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. These are basically the evidence that support those reports and uh, they are normally published through the reports themselves or also uh, videos that are published uh, to social media and the like. So, uh, yeah, wherever you see an amnesty report, it's very likely that we are behind uh, scrambling through the evidence and verifying it so we can actually publish uh, these, these violations. Cool. Okay. And um, just to confirm, you are not a millionaire. Uh, you haven't been funded by crazy business interests and billionaire politicians and so on. Uh, you're just a hardworking chap, right? I am. I wish I had that money, but <laughs> I sadly don't. So, um, yeah, I'll have yeah. to do with that. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and I'm pretty sure you don't speak Russian either. Um I'm just saying these things because I, on social media, when I read some of the criticisms that people have for Amnesty's reports, and some of these reports are painstakingly gathered um, with a lot of hard work from a lot of people, um, and then when you see on, when I read online, people just dismissing these things for bias, propaganda, it kind of makes me angry um, mm -hmm. because people are really missing uh, the point and they don't actually understand where amnesty comes from. So, um, yeah, that's why I just wanted to confirm uh, what the status was. Um, a bit tongue in cheek humor. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah. But I mean, I, I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of uh, sort of online, not necessarily abuse, but um, yeah, it's there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very aware of uh, so-called uh, shitstorm <laughs> that Amnesty is uh, subject to these days, and the questioning of their uh, of their work, most importantly. And that's why work like ours is so important to uh, make the evidence undisputable, and to make sure that everything, every, like everything published by Amnesty, every report has a solid background that uh, we can rely on. And because there's so many, so much misinformation these days, uh, so many people that want to instrumentalize misinformation to their uh, to their own sake, it's important to have a objective fact-based uh, backbone to defend all of, this, uh, all of these claims. So definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And that really does kind of, lead us gently into some of the topics that we're going to discuss today. Um, but essentially, uh, we're going to start with the the rise or the return, I should actually say, of the right in Spain in some instances. Um, and obviously, you are of uh, Spanish origin. So, um, but more than that, you've done quite a lot of studies on the right in, in Spain. Um, so, are you at all surprised, first of all, that the right has made a return in Spain? Well, um, I can't say I'm surprised, to be honest. I've been uh, researching uh, the topic of the far right in Spain throughout uh, my bachelor's, which I finished uh, two years ago, and it was clear that the far right was making a comeback. Uh, Spain is a highly polarized country, 
uh, since forever. It starts with the, the civil war in contemporary history, I might say. And uh, since then, it's been always been a polarization between the left and the right. And the last years already pointed towards a trend where the far right was rising uh, with the discontent in economic terms, in terms of the migration that was coming to Spain and um, was as other, uh, for example, left parties were rising, apart from PSOE and PP, the main two parties in Spain, there was also the far right that wanted to challenge that establishment. So uh, this rise in extreme, extreme parties on the left and the right was something uh, that has been growing in the past years. And well, uh, in, the, in the latest elections, municipal elections, they managed to score huge victories in key uh, municipalities in Spain. So I can't say I'm surprised, but it's been an exponential growth that maybe wasn't, I didn't anticipate so quickly. Mm. Um, when people think about Spanish politics, and okay, let's make it clearer. When I think about Spanish politics, some of the things which uh, come to my mind immediately um, are the um, the, the movements for independence, whether that's Catalonia, whether that's Basque or otherwise. Um, Right-wing sentiment is, I think, correctly also associated normally with uh, a sense of nationalism. Um, how much has this move, these movements for greater autonomy in some ways lit the match under nationalism and, and made it come up more? Or do you think that's a completely irrelevant uh, element? Not at all. It's uh, super relevant. Um, as a matter of fact, it brings that the topic that has just coming to the center of a conversation in Spain, of identity politics in Spain. In Spain, there are many identities. It's not only this uh, left and right divide. There's also, um, uh, there are also regional identities in Spain that are really strengthened and uh, also contest or have to coexist with the Spanish identity. And when we talk about patriotism in Spain nowadays, uh, it's often associated with the view of the conservatives, meaning Spain as uh, a uniform territory where everyone is Spain. And the reality is that Spain is a plurinational state. It has the Catalans, it has the Basque country, uh, it has many identities that live within this, uh, this country. So to kind of circle back to your question, when the Catalans declared independence unilaterally back then, if I'm not mistaken, this was 2016, this sparked a really rough response by conservatives and the far right. The far right was able to instrumentalize this very good to their own to their own uh, benefit. Um, it's it, it definitely sparked that sense of identity of the Spanishness, and we are all uniform, and everything else that tries to to challenge that notion of Spain is a threat. So definitely, I think that uh, the conservatives, and especially the far right, uh, instrumentalized that to say uh, this is the enemy, this is a threat to Spain, to our country, and it fed into their discourse and into their strategy to gain voters that were just uh, confused and uh, 
threatened by this situation. Yeah, um, what I often find, okay, identity in itself is a, is a fascinating topic, uh, whether or not we're talking about individual sense of identity and awareness of the self, uh, the true self and so on, and then you, you sort of drift into psychology and, uh, and other very interesting topics. Um, when people consider things from a, an external perspective, they tend not to see the individual divisions within a unit they see as a whole. So, uh, and, and this, I think, is born of ignorance. To speak about what's happening in Spain and to only say, yeah, the Spanish have become now you know, very nationalistic, uh, they're all fascists and so on, um, is a very ignorant perspective to take because then that would mean to ignore all of the various elements uh, which are currently bubbling up uh, inside Spain. And it's the same for every country. Whatever uh, nation or whatever region, whatever family you look at, even just within a small number of people, there are different opinions. There are different personalities, different perspectives. Um, and, and so therefore, it's what is quite instrumental in what you're saying here is when questions arise about identity, this is where a person or if we say a body of people, in this case, uh, some Spanish people, when they are at their weakest, confidence is perhaps slow, um, they lose direction. And if I'm not mistaken, Spain is also OK, it's it's a, it's a kingdom, but it's also um, a, a religious country. Um, people look to other authorities to define themselves. Um, and so when these, these traditional definitions have been weakened, there's an opportunity. And, and this is where these right-wing groups are very effective in uh, pushing themselves. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, there's always this component of fear and how to use uh, the fear of the you know, daily civilian, of, uh, you know, the people. And I think the far right does that best. And in, in terms of uh, the independence movement, uh, migration, uh, the far right has been able to exploit that and has fed those fears to their own advantage. And it's, it's something that works really well with them and that makes uh, voters uh, fiercely defend their stance for those parties. And they feel like these parties actually address a topic that the establishment, the establishment, I mean, I mean the, the two biggest parties in Spain, uh, are not successfully tackling. So definitely, I agree with you there in mm. that statement. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. And so something which I, I always kind of try to to further analyze because no concept is ever complete. Um, everything is always evolving. Everything is always moving. Um, and so it's always important to go back to thoughts or concepts or, or ideas that we've had and to uh, update them, as it were. Um, but go, going back to Spain then, um, so with regards to the recent achievements of or the gains in some cases of uh, the right wing party. So now I've identified, is it Vox um, as one of the main um, right wing parties? Is, is, are there others that you should you feel should be mentioned? 
I would say is the only one. It's the flagship far-right party in Spain. And I, if there is another one, they're, they're pretty small. So I would say Vox is the flagship party to focus on. Okay. Uh, and, but there are also traditional conservatives. Um, I mean, wh where do they rate uh, on, on the scale of, uh, of the political spectrum? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, the 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 conservatives, I would say they're the, the classic conservative party, as we know them from uh, European governments. Um, religious are conservative in terms of, um, well, economics, uh, migration policies. So they're really uh, the standard conservatives, as we know them. Uh, so moderate in terms of when we look at them uh, compared to the far right, naturally, but uh, of course not as uh, socially oriented, so to say, as uh, the social democrats. So that is the, the, the landscape that we're looking at right now. And right now, actually in Spain, it's really difficult to categorize uh, this, uh, this Pepe party because it's taken a change of direction many times in the past years, a change of leadership. And as such, there have been um, kind of advancements towards the far right that have been a bit confusing towards their identity. And then at some point, again, a return to the middle and uh, kind of like trying to distance themselves from the far right. So there have been a lot of changes in policy and make it really confusing and complicated to define this party. And um, right now, with the last municipal elections and the last national election, it is clear that they have been getting closer to the project, carefully, very carefully, without uh, wanting to categorize themselves as such. Mm. Yeah, it is very interesting because we started or you started um, the, the the topic of uh, identity and it, it it kind of emerges again there that uh, the conservative parties and I think it's not unique to Spain, but also in the UK and in Germany and uh, other countries too, with the rise of an of parties even further to the right, they kind of they they don't really know how far they should go in their policies because they're not used to having somebody on that side um they're used to being the furthest to that side they're used to being the ones that can um push i won't say liberal thinking but push progressive thinking um away and uh, claim that it's um it's a sort of anti-patriotic um that it's uh anti-establishment that it's more rebellious that it doesn't know how to manage the economy that it doesn't know how to manage businesses um and it, it's just full of sort of flighty dreams that are unrealistic um but then all of a sudden there's a new player um which has taken up considerable space on on their right which is even more direct and even more critical uh, of the current situation and they seem lost to be honest um and that from the uk's perspective i look at the conservative party they do what all conservatives do which is uh, basically respond with short-term policies very aggressive uh, trying to take control um but in fact what it looks as though is that they they have absolutely no idea they're just uh, lashing out in desperation. Their backs are against the wall. 
Is it that bad in Spain? I mean, in Spain, I would say there is just that desperation from uh, the Conservative Party. Also because social democrats and the left spectrum is is pretty pretty strong and tries to um, actually uh, manages to keep their numbers, if I'm not mistaken, at least in the past couple of years. And when you have that, and as a conservative party, you're not managing to be uh, as attractive to the people because of past policies not working or because people are looking towards other options right now and the establishment doesn't seem to be it. What we're seeing is a trend of the conservatives smartly using the far right as their partner to get them into power. So not necessarily saying uh, we are far right, but to sort of have a debate and a discourse that positions them close to the far right to an extent that they can get into government, like uh, Sweden, if I'm not mistaken, and Finland, uh, governments that uh, came into power through that far-right support, uh, but without, as I said, without quite defining themselves as far-right. So it can be always like a question mark in the heads of voters. Are they really gonna go that far or not? And it's a really interesting device to look at because it really depicts the extent that uh, conservatives are willing to go in order to get to power. And it also highlights uh, a trend lately of how conservatives are not managing to uh, win elections on their own. They're having to play smart politics, side with these uh, new actors outside uh, the establishment to that something are very questionable to voters in order to uh, overpower the other political spectrum, the so-called left. So it's it's definitely, I mean, interesting in the academic term. Personally, to me, it's not. (laughs) And yeah, um, I think that's the trend lately. And we can see it in a lot of countries that they just don't manage to do it by themselves. And they look towards these parties to do so. Yeah, and that's also an interesting point, this, the academic approach. I mean, when we w- listen to uh, podcasts, other political podcasts, um, and they have these fantastic, uh, extremely intelligent professors on, um, and they, they they do analyze things in this, not I wouldn't say cold manner, but in a, the academic manner is almost like you, you, you observe reality from a distance and you're kind of outside of that reality and you're simply commentating on it. Whereas a lot of people, they they are within the situation. They are the ones being affected by uh, political decision making. They are the ones who perhaps cannot afford to feed their families, who have two jobs or who don't have a job. Um, they can't afford the luxury of ruminating like an academic and sitting down and analyzing things. So um, as a result of that, other political commentators come in using the language of the common person. And all of a sudden, the common person says, you know what, that person is more representative of how I feel. And therefore, they are more likely to gain that vote, not because perhaps the common person has suddenly moved to the right, but it's because a relationship has been created there of understanding. Or maybe this person knows what I'm suffering. Let's see what they're talking about. Um, How is 
the level of discourse in this case because I've always I, I consider myself to be a socialist, but I'm I want to be a practical socialist. I think too much of uh, the socialist uh, communication is academic. Too much of it is intellectually based, and not enough of it refers really to what the people are feeling. How much of the discourse in Spain reflects that, do you think? Well, I will tell you this. Um, as I was studying my bachelor's and focusing on all these topics on the far right in Spain and Spain in general, as I was going back home, I always felt, okay, I know what this topic is about. And the arguments I have, you know, like go into the <clears throat> deepest aspects of uh, you know this topic through academia, through writing papers. And then you sit at the family uh, dinner table <laughs> and you basically see that that academic language, that uh, academic knowledge is not as effective as a matter of fact in those conversations. <laughs> it, is, it's, it was really frustrating to me at first, but it is what you said, the language of the common person. And I think in that regard, academia, about in, uh, in regards to Spain at least, is deeply flawed because many times it comes from actors living like that are diaspora, they're living outside of Spain, or uh, actors that do not take into account this, you know, these ground levels of interaction, like sitting at the dinner table with your family and hearing uh, the arguments that they've heard through the news. And um, circling back towards the question of discourse and why um, there's this divide between academia and I would say like the regular non-academic person is that the discourse of the parties in Spain, most specifically the far right, but it has translated into most parties because it's, it's, it's the way that um, parties know how to make their discourse successful is the antagonization, so to say, of the other. And the far right does this very effectively to sort of detect the enemies to their own identity, to their own values, and just call them out in their discourse, pose them as a threat, pose them as a danger to that sense of identity. And this is something that whenever it is talked about on the dinner table, it's, it's, it's always what's being cited. Oh, but this politician said this. Oh, but now, you know, they refer to uh, migration and how it's uh, um, endangering our girls, you say, to kind of like cite this, uh, cite this fear. And when you see this nature of discourse in Spain's politics, that the far right and the left back then with Podemos introduced, and now it's kind of gotten to the mainstream where even social democrats and the conservative parties use these rhetorics. It it makes it really difficult to have a, a conversation between actual uh, like the common people I would call them <laughs> and academics because there is this divide and that's what the debate is looking like right now. That's the nature of the divide the debate. So it's going to be a highly polarized, a highly uh, antagonistic debate they call it in academia where like you make the other one the enemy and they're the enemy because of the sphere and danger that I quoted before so when it's so emotionally charged 
academia cannot pierce through, cannot get into people's heads, cannot make sense of what you said, you know, the the problems we're facing. And I think that's that's very important to to highlight in terms of the discourse and the nature of the discourse politically in Spain. Yeah, this seems to me to be almost born of, and I, I don't want to give uh, the UK credit for this uh, because I don't think uh, Spanish politics would ever accept that anyway. Um, <laughs> but this seems to be kind of born of the yeah the 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 adversarial legal system of Anglo-Saxon law. Um, whereas, uh, as in, I think in Europe, you don't necessarily have a defense against the state or, or whatever. You've got a judge who actually has a far more active role in trying to understand what the truth is. Whereas Anglo-Saxon law is more based on who can provide the best argument. Um, mm -hmm. and th there's this adversarial system kind of lends itself also to a binary mindset. You know, it's one or the other. It's you or me. There is no other alternative. Um, and unfortunately, we kind of see this playing out in also lots of other political arenas and uh, conflict arenas around the world, unfortunately, that there's only it's them or us. And obviously, that's never a good situation to be in. But it also plays itself into right wing propaganda, this sense of binary and mm -hmm. looking a bit more as to box for example and some of the things because they they kind of first took their uh control as it were uh, or stranglehold in valencia um if i'm not mistaken um and they immediately targeted the lgbtq plus community in the area i was always under the impression that the um lgbtq plus community or movement in Spain was quite strong. Is is that not still the case from what you are aware of? It is, it is as a matter of fact, really strong. And as, as soon as Vox entered the municipal government of Valencia and they started uh, doing these things, removing the, uh, the LGBTQ flags, banning films to some extent in municipalities that included such content, I would call it, they actually got massive backlash from the movement and it came back to that uh, kind of polarization between the, the LGBTQ movement and uh, you know the more conservative and the religious part of Spain, of course, going all the way to the far right, but it again uh, shows this societal split. But uh, nevertheless, as I said, the fact that Vox did this does not mean that the movement uh, is weak. As a matter of fact, it's pretty strong in Spain. It's been always very vocal and it caused a massive backlash. So it's it's not like Vox is uh, kind of managing to undermine these sentiments and these, uh, these people here. Yeah, this is definitely one of the many reasons why I have such uh, an affinity for the LGBTQ plus community. I think they are politically aware, generally speaking, with the people that I have spoken with. There is a, a strong sense of connection. There is a strong sense of equality, uh, fairness, because of having suffered inequality for such a long time, uh, a lack of respect from the, the ruling classes. And also a topic which I had not necessarily forgotten about, but that you reminded me of earlier. For me, 
some in especially politically the most important elements of society are the progressive elements because I, I associate myself most most closely with them so I, I'm happy to present my biases in front of everyone so I'm very pro gender equality I think the future of humanity is in the hands of women and, and very much supported by the LGBTQ plus community now in Spain recently there was uh, a very <laughs> controversial incident with regards to the, the the head of the Spanish FA and, and you reminded me about this and eventually he stood down but I don't think he stood down because he felt he had done anything wrong he stood down because of the pressure he had been put under um, is this entire saga also related to some parts of Spanish society moving to the right as well because in right-wing communities shall we say the role of the woman is greatly diminished definitely i think uh, actually i found it and this is only my opinion so um, <laughs> anyone who's listening to this podcast please uh, be be aware of that <laughs> i think that this case is to a certain extent representative of whenever you have this sort of sexual abuse in Spain. It is basically this whole debate and game around she, like, how to put this in proper words, um, kind of questioning the victim's statement uh, and whether, you know, it might have been like the, the actions by the man might have been misinterpreted. And the man, of course, saying that and they, of course, didn't want to, um, for example, Rubiales said that the kiss was an act of uh, euphoria in the moment. And he actually asked her uh, if uh, they wanted to kiss, something that uh, Jenny Hermoso, the player, uh, the, um, the manager of Spain's football association, like totally denied like there, like there was no uh, question before that kiss happened and uh, it sparks this debate between uh, like you know among society in spain of oh she might have been lying kind of undermining this whole feminist struggle or uh, the, the 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 perspectives of uh, women in spain whenever they they're facing such uh, such aggressions so as I said, uh, we see this 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 split in society again, uh, where the conservatives kind of question these policies and the statements of women that have faced uh, these kind of assault, and of course the the, the feminist perspectives just voicing that that this had been uh, plain and just absolute sexual assault. So say it's definitely tricky and as you said i i have been carefully trying to uh measure my words here which has led, led to a bit of um well confusion but definitely there is uh, around this case there was a, a lot of controversy on how the manager reacted and it, he definitely stepped down because of pressures and because fifa imposed a ban on him where he couldn't act as the acting president for a couple of months. So uh, he was deeply convinced of what he did. And 
in the lie that he was promoting, that he did ask for the kiss, that it was a moment of euphoria that it is okay. Like in that lie, he is deeply convinced that he did nothing wrong, even though cameras were there. Uh, there is the statement of Jamil Mosul, which is mind blowing to me. We have the statement, we have the cameras, and he still has the audacity of kind of relativizing the story. And that is a problem that we have nowadays in Spain, that whenever this abuse happens, it is always being questioned and kind of like everything is revisited again. And I think that's just inherently wrong. Yeah, it's also indicative of um, societies beyond Spain, uh, including Spain, but also beyond Spain. Whenever I've read uh, comments from women on social media, one one of the most um, telling and thought-provoking statements, which said spoken by many women, is this is why women who suffer abuse don't automatically go to the police, because even when it occurs in front of millions on television people deny it there is debate it's it's not automatically accepted as having occurred the way the victim says it occurred and most sexual abuse doesn't happen in front of uh, millions of people on live television and so therefore the the ability to prove uh, that it occurred is not so easy. And um, a lot of the time women end up having to sit in front of a police officer that automatically doesn't believe them anyway. Um, and in some, I would say perhaps limited situations, but uh, I don't know, maybe not so limited, um, the police officers themselves are sexist. So mm -hmm. it's, it's very much a system kind of set up, whether that's deliberate or not against women, but we clearly know in this patriarchal society that it exists purely for for men to enjoy. And this is also why I think society finds itself in a situation that it does. Uh, lots and lots of people are unhappy. They don't really know why. Uh, I think one of the reasons why is because yeah, women aren't in charge enough, really. I, I think if women were given the opportunities that men have had over the last three or four hundred years, uh, we would be living in a far happier, far more content and, and more environmentally friendly world. But yeah, time will tell uh, whether or not uh, humanity wakes up to these facts or not. Moving on, though, things didn't quite work out the way that the right wing thought. So lots, I mean, even Georgia Meloni went to Spain and helped to campaign for the right wing, but they, they didn't really uh, push on from the early successes that they had and as you said the the, the uh, spanish left has maintained its levels in the face of this uh, right-wing onslaught uh, and they retain control to some extent yeah i mean i think the only good takeaway from those municipal elections earlier this year where the far right won in so many municipalities is that the social democrats were able to mobilize voters and to kind of instrumentalize that view that the far right is taking over. It is now or never in these national elections where we can stop this. And this was a masterful move by uh, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez because he knew that if he let the far right just take over the municipalities and wait until a later on election, 
he might actually fail. And using this momentum to mobilize voters and to highlight the fact that the far right might be taking over Spain, that actually helped a lot. And um, the conservatives in the far right tried uh, pitching the government recently in Spain. Uh, that session, of course, uh, failed. Were, that government was not voted in. And now we're in this limbo in Spain where um, the social democrats will try to uh, push for a government of their own. And the only way they could be able to get the numbers together is if they um, side with the more pro-independence parties in Catalonia. And that is already something that uh, this, we don't know yet if that's going to be successful. Because these parties, for example, are asking for amnesty for those politicians that got imprisoned back then in 2000, uh, for, for the acts of 2016, something that a lot of people in Spain are against. So we're right now in a limbo where the social democrats might have to side with that pro with those pro-independence parties that are not liked in various sectors of Spain society. And I'm sure that if they end up being elected into government, it's going to be it's going to further feed into this polarization, into this antagonistic debates. But uh, it might also fail. And that would cause and we get another uh, political blockade in Spain, like uh, the one that happened a couple of years ago, uh, where we were not able to form our government, and that created a political paralysis where, uh, well, no politics could successfully be done in the country. So it's very interesting to see what direction Spain will take and whether we'll try this bold approach by the Social Democrats featuring Catalan parties, or if uh, we're entering another blockade because of our incapacity to actually talk things through outside of the stone. And in Spain, for example, the, the thought of a grand coalition like it has happened in Germany is just unthinkable because of these rhetorics. And that might have been something that could have uh, broken this uh, blockade, but as you know, that is something that <laughs> parties will rather not have. So it's it's representative of the situation and the problems that we've talked about. But um, yeah, that's that's the situation that arose from that and that um, mobilization of uh, social democrat voters. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I, I also think that political parties, and I, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, Political parties far too often think in the short term um, without enough consideration for potential long term consequences of their decisions. If the left is going to embrace the independence movement parties in the short term, then they have to be willing to forever be associated with the movements themselves. Um, and that will obviously play into the hands of the nationalists uh, on the right, and they will never be able to change that. So um, I'm, I'm sure they are aware of these facts. Yeah, time will tell. Time will tell. Because political parties have uh, really flown out of political debates because of these individual decisions. 
Um, I think, for example, in Germany, the Green Party suffered for about 10 years uh, because of their previous coalition government decisions. Um, it would be a real problem if in Spain the left was diminished uh, because of a single decision to get power in the short term. But at the same time, pay attention to how the left will be scrutinized by this move. Yet the conservatives were siding with the far right. There is this question, you know, like they could maybe bounce back because their association to, to the far right is not like quite as blatant. I mean, there there is for sure. They, they are being scrutinized for it. But there is the sector that is like, there is a justification for this. Whereas with the social democrats, if they get, if they, if they really take the step, it will be, they will be scrutinized. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how the, the, the conservatives have been smart to relativize this relationship, put question marks, make this really confusing. And the social democrats who are not hiding as much, it's like, it's like a death sentence is killed right now. Mm, so it's, could be. If we look at both sides, it's it's really interesting to see that. It's indicative of the world that the right wing has created, that they have normalized uh, the far right in politics and done the absolute opposite for left wing progressive positions. Um, and, and this is something we have to be fearful of. But this is something which and like to touch on the sort of final topic, as it were. This is the influence of think tanks within political discourse in, uh, we're talking about Europe here, but we've seen this quite a bit in the USA. Think tanks, which are backed by very large donors, usually elitist, uh, corporatist donors, very much on the right wing. They are, they are organized, they are dedicated, they have people at hand, thousands of people, if needed, to conduct online campaigns. They are ready for whatever battle the political arena presents them. And I am sure, unfortunately, that the left wing doesn't have this. Now, either mm -hmm. that's because there isn't so much money or it's because they're not willing to engage with external groups to provide that kind of support. Where, where do you see that? Because the online battle for politics and influence is relatively new in politics. So I know you saw me right now scrambling for my phone very quickly as you were saying. <laughs> and it's, I just remembered this, uh, this news article that came, came out barely a week ago where it said that Vox managed to gather 1.5 million euros in private donations in 2019, which is nearly double the amount that all other parties together were able to bring in in, in, in the same year. So it's it really makes you think about a lot of things. Like, first of all, these parties, in terms of uh, more public funding, they're, they're, they don't get as much funding because it's, as an institution, for example, a uh, public institution, uh, 
sponsoring these parties is always something that might fire back on you naturally. But private donors, um, it's it's a bit scary that uh, they that Vox was able to raise so much money, and it poses a question of who are these people that have this amount of money? Uh, it of course points towards the higher end society, so to say, and the higher socioeconomic statuses. Will we ever know who they who they actually were? It's really interesting to think about who are these seemingly very powerful people that are behind our rights and trying to disrupt uh, national politics through their massive amounts of money. In the end, if the far right is so powerful, it will probably be because these very powerful people, very rich people, uh, were able to fund it and are trying to get their interest through uh, with this party. So it's it's a bit scary, in my opinion, to see that private donations are uh, so big, especially with far-right parties. And in my opinion, it poses a further question whether there should be more transparency and or even regulation when it comes to private donations. In, in Germany, for example, there is a very strict laws uh, in terms of uh, donations to NGOs or uh, political parties. And if I'm not mistaken, every donation bigger than 10,000 euros now has to be publicly uh, disclosed in this called lobby register, uh, where the, the person is uh, named and the amount that they donated. And I think that's actually whereas some people were with concerns from data protection, of course, like uh, Germans, nothing we know that Germans have. It is, it is a matter of transparency that I think would give us some insight into who are the people that support these parties and what are we really looking in here. So, yeah, just food for thought that I wanted to include for sure. But... Yeah, definitely concerning and to see that it's double the amount in all other parties together in Spain, just, um, I will not say anything else then. Just, oh. <laughs> but uh, just a couple of things on that. I, I think that the German approach is the correct one. If somebody wants to directly engage in influencing political decision-making at the highest level, then I think that for that particular activity, uh, the right to data privacy um, is then no longer valid. Um, it's different if if I'm sending my you know 10 grand or 15k to a friend of mine because they need financial help and I'm providing that for them. That's different because that's not going to affect the nation. But if I want to influence politics directly, then I think um, I should be named um, and that should be placed on a public register. And I think that's the right way of, um, of doing things. Um, the other point I wanted to make also is that normally when people talk about such things, the response is, ah, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're talking about these secret groups, blah, blah, blah. No, these are not secret groups. As you said, these are business interests. These are people who... Uh, very clearly seek to profit from their investment. Uh, sending money to a right-wing political party for them is an investment. In many cases, it's actually cheaper than advertising um, to attain the same objective. So 
this is not in any way a conspiracy theory, which anybody would, you know, where there's no tinfoil hats here. Um, but they have to realize that the game has changed a little bit. What, what in the past necessitated secrecy no longer is there. It's very open. Um, but people have to open their eyes to see it. And I think at the moment, we're still not there with the, the majority of the electorate. So, yeah. Okay. Um, every bubble bursts. Uh, I think uh, that's just the nature of bubbles. Unfortunately, at the moment, we are riding a kind of situation where there is a lot of dissatisfaction, disharmony. There's a lot of fear. Um, there are impending tragedies everywhere. If we look at what's happening uh, around the world, in the Middle East, in Ukraine, uh, climate change, poverty, refugee crises, um, and so on. And obviously, politics and politicians are pouring their propaganda bullshit into this bubble. Can you see this bubble bursting anytime soon? Or do you think it still has a few years to grow? With the bubble, you mean the propaganda bubble? These, yeah, uh, the right wing parties. bubble. Yeah, the right wing bubble that's growing. As a matter of fact, I very sadly, and there is a gut feeling that I have, that it will only be growing in the coming years uh, as we have increasing conflict and hence increasing uh, migration crises. As um, we have these um, highly polarizing issues, as you said, like climate change and uh, we face uh, the biggest inflation we have uh, yet faced. I think these parties will be able to feed from that, um, from those problems. And it is historically known that wherever there has been conflict, the conservatives or the far right manages to make themselves strong because they specifically feed from uh, of those fears are able to make themselves strong and look like the safe haven, so to say, in, um, in this regard. So I think I have the gut feeling that it will grow even more and that it's for us to stop, so to say, the, 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 you know, the people that you know, we actually use our reasoning, that we uh, inform ourselves, uh, are able to counter misinformation and to tell it apart, of course. And it is a difficult task and it's a difficult task to generalize among society. But uh, someone, something that we cannot forget it is, is that the people are the ones that put those parties in power and that we can definitely fight this gut feeling of, okay, it's happening all over again. We're letting the far right uh, governments uh, govern. So it's that is something that you know it's not a helpless uh, thing that's going to happen at the cost. It's something that we can stop and that we can counter. Fantastic, um, Pablo. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk politics with you. I missed the, those good old days where we could do that. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk with you further on a few topics. We only touched on some things uh, briefly, but uh, yeah, if you are available at some point in the future, it'd be great to continue our chat. Naturally, whenever. Just let me know. You know that basketball is always a, a good way to communicate <laughs> these things. And yeah. thank you so much to, for inviting me 
into this beautiful podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for your insight, um, your knowledge. And um, yeah, I'll see you on Saturday. But Yeah, see you on Saturday. And thanks for this amazing conversation. Take care. Two and a mic.